Welcome to this special COVID-19 episode of the Caring Greatly podcast. As always, this podcast is focused on issues of leadership and humanity in healthcare. But during the COVID-19 crisis, we're focusing on the particular challenges raised by the novel coronavirus response. In today's episode, I'm talking with Dr. Angela Getford, Chief Education Officer at Children's of Minnesota. Dr. Getford is a pediatrician who believes in delivering care that helps all children reach their full potential. Welcome, Dr. Getford, and thanks for joining me. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me back, Liz. Really appreciate it. So we talked in our first episode about the ways that LGBTQ and gender nonconforming youth and young adults need awareness of and consideration for their unique needs in healthcare. How did the COVID-19 crisis impact these young people? You know, there's, there's a lot of ways that LGBTQ kids were impacted. And I think it's helpful some ways to think about how all young people were impacted. So when the quarantine hit, um, one of the early things that happened is that schools closed. And when schools close, youth, in particular teenagers, lost contact with their peers, and all kids lost contact with the structure that they had to their daily lives. Um, for kids, and particularly for adolescents, peers are their primary support system. And for LGBTQ kids, their peers are often the ones who they're getting primary support from around their identities. And while schools aren't always the safest place for LGBTQ kids, they often do house the only source of support or support groups that kids have, which are gay straight alliances or GSAs or other LGBTQ support groups. And so they, they lost that support. And while they're losing that support, they're also being asked to shelter in place or stay home with their family. And what we know is that 50 to 60% of LGBTQ kids don't experience support from their parents. So now they're sheltering in place in a home with people who they maybe don't feel loves or supports them for their identity. In the case of transgender and gender nonconforming kids with family members who aren't using their chosen name, aren't using their affirmed pronouns, um, maybe are keeping them from having contact with their peers or potentially other online support groups that would be really helpful for them. And so while all of this is happening, we also know that going into quarantine, LGBTQ kids were already at higher risk. So they already experienced higher rates of depression and anxiety. Their suicidality rates were higher. LGBTQ kids are three to eight times more likely to contemplate suicide than their um, heterosexual peers. And the biggest risk factor for suicidality is parental rejection. LGBTQ mm -hmm. kids who experience parental rejection are like eight to nine times more likely to um, commit suicide. And so you throw all those things together and those of us who care for LGBTQ kids were really concerned about this population and how they were going to um, weather all of the changes of the pandemic in addition to um, kind of all of the typical things that we were worried about with kids. Yeah, and I was really grateful at the beginning of the pandemic that you and your peers put out a video basically affirming that, that these kids were loved, these kids were welcome, they were part of your family. Um, can you talk about why you wanted to make sure that got out there? Yeah, absolutely. We, yeah, we put out this video called You're Amazing Because, and the primary message was, you know, one of resilience to help kids get through this time, sort of along the lines of the It Gets Better project, um, but also one of celebration and just reminding kids that, you know, not only are they okay, um, but they're amazing and, yeah. and we should celebrate them. And I think one of the other things that's happening right now in the LGBTQ community, because it's June and it's Pride Month, is that Pride celebrations across the country are being either moved online or in the case of our Twin Cities Pride, completely canceled. Mm -hmm. And one important piece to remember is that 
while it may sound startling that up to half of kids don't experience acceptance from their parents, a probably even more startling number is that in a human rights campaign study done last year, only 10% of kids hear words in their home that are, that are celebrating their identities. Wow. So even if parents aren't rejecting a kid, they're not celebrating them. They're not saying, I think it's wonderful that you're exploring the gender binary. I think it's brave of you to be your true self. I want you to you know, be loved and happy and tell me about your girlfriend or boyfriend or what are all of these things. And I think you know, we forget that and we forget that while pride started as a riot and while pride started as an act of resistance, what it has turned into over the years is a celebration and a celebration of identities that aren't often celebrated. And for kids, that is critical. They yeah. need to know not just that it's okay. They need to know that it's wonderful. They need to know that they are wonderful. They need to know that they have a whole community that you know comes in all shapes and sizes and occupations and you know, all spectrums of the gender binary and just all kinds of people. And at Pride, they get to see that. They get mom hugs from, you know, our larger LGBTQ family. And when Pride goes online, they don't get that. And when yeah. Pride gets canceled, they don't get that. And, you know, I was, I was saying to you just before we started that for us as LGBTQ adults, we get it. Like, We've been to Pride before. We've had our first Pride experiences that were, you know, pretty overwhelming for many of us. We know Pride is going to come again. But for youth, they don't necessarily know that. They've been looking forward to this, in some cases, for years, and now yeah. are just brave enough to go. They, it's like canceling a birthday party or a prom or a graduation. It's a big life event for them. And while we know it's going to come again, it hits them particularly hard. Yeah. Um, so I think it's sad too, that in addition to all those other sort of things we're worried about, that we have this very real consequence of the pandemic of cancellation of this big, um, you know, really worldwide celebration of LGBTQ yeah. identities. Well, and I think that's particularly hard right now, be looking at everything going on nationally, because the administration just rolled back healthcare protections for transgender people. Um, yeah. And that's specific to transgender people, but it affects all LGBTQ people. And can you talk about why that's dangerous to the safety and well-being of, of transgender folks? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so first, I just have to say that this latest move by the Trump administration is just one in a long line of moves by this administration to erase and discriminate against transgender and gender diverse people, LGBTQ people in general, but particularly transgender and gender diverse people. So it's really disheartening. And, you know, the Department of Health and Human Services issued a new rule that would essentially invite insurance companies, hospitals, doctors, other healthcare professionals to deny transgender people um, protections that are actually mandated by the Affordable Care Act. So it's sort of an illegal um, opportunity to deny care to trans people. And so what can happen from here is that people who don't want to provide care, whether that be an insurance company or an individual healthcare provider, could deny um, transgender and gender diverse people access to healthcare based on this rule. Um, and I think it's particularly sort of brazen of the administration and the Department of Health and Human Services to do this when we're in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. And you know, for those who don't know, um, transgender individuals are the most targeted in our community, in our LGBTQ community. They often don't 
get access to healthcare as it is. They don't have access to services that they need. It can be years of a journey to get to a doctor who will prescribe hormones or get access to a surgeon or save enough money to get a surgery that insurance company won't cover for. And now, you know, the sort of highest authority in our country is saying, that's fine. You right. don't deserve access to that. It's okay to discriminate against you. And transgender people, I do also have to say, they are putting themselves at risk when they come to healthcare in the first place. And I say this as a healthcare provider, but historically we have not treated them well. They experience discrimination from us, so they're also taking a risk just to come in. But at least before the 12th, they were taking a risk that something would happen, but knowing that they maybe had a backup if it did. And yeah. now they've, you know, this sort of just a open season to discriminate, which is really disheartening. It is disheartening. Um, uh, and it's in a, so many disheartening things that, that are coming to light. And at least, you know, there's, there's a lot of people pushing back on it. Um, and hopefully that will lead to some lasting and systemic change. Um, and along those lines, Pride Month this year is coinciding with a pretty dramatic increase in visibility and action uh, to address racial inequities. Um, and the LGBTQ community crosses all racial and ethnic boundaries, um, all class boundaries. Can you share some thoughts about how leaders can think about intersectionality and how to address disparities for LGBTQ folks and the ways that those may play differently um, given um, racial and ethnic diversity as well? Yeah, you know, we know that there is intersectionality of identity and then therefore there's intersectionality of oppression and discrimination. So if you are, for example, a black transgender woman you are experiencing um, gender-based oppression, you're experiencing oppression based on your gender identity, you're experiencing oppression based on your race. So um, black trans women are the most at risk and the most targeted and the most often killed in our society. So we know that, that all of those risks compound. And I think this moment in history is a really good opportunity for us to think about the ways that we've always provided care and I really uh, like this concept of centering on the margins and thinking about, you know, whether you're thinking about improving care based on a racial identity, based on an immigration status, based on an LGBTQ identity. If you've set up your care to primarily care for people who don't have those identities, then you're going to provide substandard care for people who do. So if you flip it around and think about how could we set up our healthcare systems to provide the best care for people who don't speak English, the best care for people who, you know, don't identify as male or female, the best care for black and brown people. If you flip your system to provide that quality of care, you will provide good quality of care for all people, including white, straight, cisgender people. And so I think when we think about intersectionality, I, I like to think about it for us in healthcare as an opportunity for us to think about centering our care on identities that aren't typically centered so that we can really dramatically improve care for everyone. That makes a lot of sense. And I think there was another point that you made. We had a, a call last week that included yourself and your chief equity and, and diversity officer, uh, James Burroughs. And you, one or the, one or both of you made the point about intersectionality that while there is um, overlap often between different identities, for example, lesbian, gay, transgender, there are also important differences. So when you're thinking about, and similarly, if you're a, a, an LGBTQ person of color, and that might be different if you're Latinx versus uh, black, 
um, how you can't lump everybody into some you know, other category uh, and expect to serve all of them well. So can you elaborate on that just a little bit? Yeah, I think, you know, identity is really important. And, and I think you have to listen to the voices of the particular community that you are trying to serve well and listen to what they need to get better care. And the listening is uncomfortable. You know, it's not, well, I do a lot of training about LGBTQ health and how to improve care for LGBTQ folks, in particular trans and gender diverse kids. And it's uncomfortable when I reflect back to my own health system, ways that we misgender patients, ways that we call them the wrong name, ways that they have a hard time navigating our system because we think of ourselves as good people who do the right thing. And there's nothing in this that says we're not good people, but we're working in a system that's been set up to create the health disparities that we have right now. So what we have to do is listen to black and brown communities and hear the uncomfortable things that they have to tell us about how we have not served them well, and then change it. We have to listen to communities that don't speak English as the first language and hear their struggles in our healthcare system and be uncomfortable with that and then change it. And it's, it can seem daunting, but it really, it really is the only way to get it right. And, mm -hmm. and we can't, we have to listen to the particulars of what each community needs to know that we're gonna really need what we need to going forward to close the disparity gap. Yeah, and it's also such a critical first step in trust, as, as you mentioned, for the transgender community, the same exists for the black community, a distrust based on historical precedent um, that listening is the first step to resolving, which I think is really important. So as you look ahead, are there any lessons learned um, already that you think are, are, are helpful to bring to the fore, either from COVID-19 or the current racial injustice protests that leaders can use to shape their thinking about the future of human-centered care? You know, I, I was thinking a lot about this question and, and I think the, the biggest lesson for me with, you know, our pandemic of racial injustice with our COVID-19 pandemic, but particularly focused on the COVID-19 pandemic is, you know, it's important to recognize when what you're doing and what you've always done doesn't work. And if we rely on a system to care for patients that couldn't keep us safe before the pandemic, we needed to change it so that we could keep ourselves safe during the pandemic. And we did. Yeah, We have. We adapted our care in ways that we would have never thought possible. So the thing that's inspiring to me about this is we can change. So if we've relied on a system that creates health inequities for hundreds of years, and we know we're not gonna get equitable care until we change the system, the good news is we can change it. Yeah. And you know, I think we also often say, well, we are changing it, but it takes time and it's hard. And I think there's an urgency around the most recent uprising and the cry for racial justice. And I think the combination of looking at that in the face of COVID is to say, we can't hide behind we need time as an excuse. We just completely turned our entire healthcare system on its head in a matter of weeks during a global pandemic. So we know we can do hard things and yeah. we can do this. We just have to have the will to do it. Um, and I wanted to maybe close with a quote that I pulled out um, from Angela Davis, who is, is someone I've um, just learned from a lot in, in reading, watching her speak and reading her words. But she, she has a quote relative to the LGBTQ community and race. And she says, I don't think we would be where we are today 
had not the transgender community taught us that it's possible to effectively challenge that, is which, that which is considered the very foundation of our sense of normalcy. So if it is possible to challenge the gender binary, then we can certainly resist prisons and jails and police. And I love that quote, not only because it centers trans women and I think trans women of color, but also because it tells us we can change. And that's what COVID-19 has shown me in healthcare. We can change. We've changed everything about what we do. So we can change our racist and heterosexist um, healthcare systems and, and we can make them better. So I'm holding on to that as inspiration that we can create a better future going forward. I, I love that. I believe in it. And knowing that leaders like you are out there championing it, making it possible uh, is part of what gives me hope. So thank you so much, Dr. Gepford. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again for having me, Liz. We'll continue with special COVID-19 episodes of the Caring Greatly podcast for the foreseeable future. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe and rate us on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or Spotify, or you can find links to all of our episodes at vocera.com slash podcast. This is Liz Bohm. Thank you for caring greatly. Thank you.